Welcome back to the Boundary Corner Podcast. I'm Curtis Wilson. I'm Brian Siegler, buddy. Wednesday night, we're rolling a little later tonight. A little later tonight, man. Big guy over here had a presentation at 9 o'clock. Had a bang that out and crush it. I'm assuming I'm assuming crushed. Done and done, man. Done and done. Awesome, dude. Congrats on that. I know you've been working on that project pretty much all fall. So too long. Too long. Good job on that. Now now he 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 rolls in, gets us rolling within like 15 minutes. So even more kudos to you. I was expecting to be on at 1030, 1045, but you're banging it, dude. You're you're crushing the day. Gotta knock it out fast, man. Gotta get gotta get it rolling. And uh yeah, it's it was a uh it was an interesting um time. We we kind of got there a little ahead and did a little uh little, little run through together before we went in there and went live, but uh it went well and now we're here talking some hokies, talking uh Duke preview this week. Uh we got some other big news we're gonna hit first though. Absolutely. A lot to unload this week because it has been one heck of a week since we last talked on Sunday. And we're going to start with basically all the coaching movement. I mean, let's start first with probably the big one and something Hokie related. Todd Grantham out at Florida along with offensive lineman John Savessi. Um, Dan Mullen was already on the hot seat. They get the doors blown off of him by South Carolina. He cuts Grantham go. He had already fired members of the defensive staff um, uh, last season. Yep. I mean, people are going to say, well, what about Grantham to Tech? What do you say to that, Brian? No. 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 Nah. No, it's not going to happen either. I mean, there, there's a few things. I mean, number one, we look at just what's happened over the uh, last few years with that defense. Um, number two, let's talk about there's a reason that Grantham hadn't had a head coaching job mm-hmm. up to this point. Um, he rose folks the wrong way. He's not necessarily a guy that's going to uh, wheel and deal with the donors very well. And he could be a guy that is abrasive enough with some of his staff that guys might not want to stay long term. So I think those things are just playing into it where it just he's a at best a coordinator, um, guy that yeah. can kind of silo everything and work within a in his own world there, but it's not somebody that can really do all the things that you need from a coach, especially at the power five level. Absolutely. Um and it's it, the, the I think the question is now asked is with the with this move is Dan Mullen essentially cool to see it a little bit. Can That's the question. Did did he did he punt the the firing of of himself out at least another season? Are they going to say, "All right, you did you did the right thing here. Mm-hmm. We're going to give you one more chance to get the right guys in house and to at the very least, win the games that should be winnable on your schedule. And that's the problem with Florida this year is it's not that they're not competing for SEC East. It's that they're losing games they shouldn't. And that's the biggest issue. So it's going to be really interesting to see. Or is this a move pulled by the athletic department to try to start cutting people off now? Yeah, to start it could be. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens after the Florida State game Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, yeah. Next one. Texas Tech is no longer open. 
So Fuente cannot go there. Joy McGuire gets hired. He had been an AHC and a linebackers coach at Baylor since 2016 with Matt Rule. He stayed over into the Dave Aranda. His big piece is he basically coached down at Cedar Hill, a pretty big powerhouse down in Texas for close to 15 years. Earlier today, guys, all conversations was like, how did this guy get hired? He wasn't an OC. He'd never been. I guarantee you, Joey McGuire knows every good football program and good head coach in the high school room in the state of Texas. And if you're yeah, going to Tech, you got to know it. And that and that's the thing, because Texas Tech isn't – I mean, they're really what you would consider, I would say, a third-tier Texas team, right? They're probably a hair below the TCUs they, and Baylors. They teeter. Um, they teeter. Yeah, the, they teeter. The, I'll, I'll, I'll give them that, but they, but they are – they're on the whole, really. at least in the last five, five to years. ten years, yeah. you, you consider them a step below the TCUs and the Baylors. Exactly. Exactly. So if if you're trying to compete against those those other schools for prof, high profile recruits, you better have good relationships in your state, and also with those good relationships, he's going to be able to find those guys that are flying under the radar for some of the, the, the higher up schools. So I think that those relationships are going to play uh, into this being a, a pretty good hire for them. I don't think, it, I mean, it's not flashy. It's, it's very much a, I mean, it's probably a, a very Mike Young hire, right? For them. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> except, except for a guy that doesn't, he does, doesn't have the experience at the, at the head, head coaching, coach. but in terms of a guy that's seems to be a good culture fit, a good uh, person that knows the area that he's going to be handling a lot, uh, it, it seems like yeah. that type of hire for them. Yeah, I think it's a good hire for them um, because of what you said about the not the top tier guys, but knowing the second and third tier recruits out of Texas to start building the program. That program can be good. We saw it under Mike Leach for basically a decade until Craig James's kid basically got him fired. And they have been nothing since then. Yep. All right. So, you know, it continues to go on. Jimmy Lake isn't playing out in Washington. He's only been there for two seasons. John Donovan out as OC. Um, not really affecting too much. This is not an East Coast thing. But I think you see a trend here. And when we get to the last one, it's the big one. That what, what could have saved Justin one day, these guys are doing, right? Yeah. Like you see a you see a underperforming part of your team, cut the guy, let him go. That's the only way you're going to be saved is because it's action, not inaction. When you attempt to take action on something that is a problem, most people say he can recognize it. We have to give him more time to see if he actually can fix it. But you know, Lake's a defensive guy. So yep. him him being a head coach just chopping off saying, I don't want to say this. I feel like if Bud ever would have became a head coach, this would have happened real quick in Blacksburg. <laughs> Keeping teams to 18 points a game and we're losing. You're gone. Yeah, and, I, you know, we, we, we've talked about it a whole lot with uh, with getting rid of Brad Cornell. So, I mean, we said it, as early as the end of 2018, you could have made the call um, definitely as, as, as early as end of 2019 uh, when it took – Jerry kill coming in and essentially holding his hand through the rest of the season to, to really muster an eight win uh, campaign when uh, 
you know, expectations were, were fairly high and early, early returns were about as low as you could imagine. Exactly. Um, and that brings us to the other one, that we, the other vacancy that we thought was going to be, and now is not because Scott Frost brought the hammer down, <laughs> fired the OC, O-line coach, quarterback coach, running back coach, wide receiver coach is like, Saved. Could you imagine the wide receiver coach like sitting there? Hey, coach just called the OC and oh shit, he fired him. Next guy. And wait, did did the OC coach wide receivers? That might be. (laughs) No, no, no. I don't think so. I think he was just straight up OC. Okay. Um, But he went hammered down, and, and and some people have been saying Frost was on the hot seat. Frost had only really been there two normal years. If we if we're taking COVID year aside, he had only been there two normal years. What he's doing is typically what happens in third years of most programs that are underachieving. You clean, yeah, you clean house. Because of COVID, you know we're on a different timeline. I'm sure his thought was, "Well, weird season last year. I want to see where we go this year." Because they're not losing games because of their defense. They're, I mean, they held down, and I know there were some injured guys on Ohio State. They held Ohio State to 23. That's impressive. They kept it close enough where they had a chance at the end to make something happen, and they just – They couldn't. Couldn't get it going. So he absolutely brings the hammer down, and I think with that you can say Nebraska. Is he on a hot seat going into next year? Likely um, going into his year five. But I think what he's did is he's given himself the opportunity – to where if they put a winning season together, he extends it one year by saying you made the right moves, yeah. you put yourself in a good winning position, and now we're going to give you – you have a decent season, you get one more season to really excel. If he can get to eight or nine next year, then he probably is safe. Keep keeping his job again. Um, as long as they see some sort of upward trajectory um, with these changes, I think they'll probably uh, let it ride. Um so wait a minute. Can, can I ask you this? Let's, yep. let's let's go to Scott Frost. How easy would a fit that be for Justin Fuente to go in there? Experienced offensive coordinator who's been a head coach, who you know know how to run offense. You look at some of the stuff he does. It has some pieces of what Frost did at UCF. Not everything, but there's there's some there's some variations. There's some overlap. Yeah. Think about the area. He would probably bring Vice with him and Lechtenberg being a Nebraska guy. That's an interesting thing. Again, and a lot of this depends on whether uh, Fuente is wants to continue being a head coach or whether he would prefer to be a Power 5 coordinator. He's not getting the head coach job right now. He's not. Not, not even G5? No. Okay. Unless he wants to scrape bottom of the barrel like Bowling Green, I mean, I mean, or accurate like one of these absolutely dumpster fire programs, he's not yeah. getting a good P, a G five. He's not getting a good G five job. Okay, that, I mean that makes sense. He's not. Yeah, getting, he's so he's essentially not getting the uh, any of the puddle jump openings that that are coming open. Exactly, he's not going to get those because I think what's going on with him is. He's going to have to prove to – because the the ADs at those schools, especially you think about SMU and, and schools like that, 
they're making money. They're having good attendance. They're competing. Yeah. They're getting ranked. You want to come in here after what you did there when you were set up with a great situation? No, no. You go on down to the really low rung, Texas States, where basically these are one to two win teams. See what you can do. Maybe you can come back up eventually. So that's my opinion on it. You're probably not far off, man. I mean, uh, we'll see. That's going to be – it's going to be one of those things. I know some people will not – when he gets fired, will not follow him. I will. I will see. I want to see what he does elsewhere and to see if it was truly was it a was it a truly bad fit or was some of his coaching methods essentially ten years old and didn't work anymore. And some of that might be it's just thing things that you can things that you choices you don't have to make as an offensive coordinator. Now they fall in your lap and he just not prepared to Mm -hmm. have the right culture fit to, to make those, those work long-term. Absolutely. Um, And and some of that is, is how, how things are relating with players. Some of it's how punishments are being handed down. And some, some of that's been out of his hands, but some of it that has been in his hands has been, potentially questionable um, as far as how things were handled. So, um, and, and that's, that's things as a head coach that, that you don't necessarily have to think about too much as a coordinator. Exactly. Um, So so some of those things get taken off his plate. Exactly. All right, Brian, let's roll on here. College football playoff rankings come out last night and here's the order. Georgia at number one, no shock there. Alabama stays put at number two. I don't know why we punished other teams for not having good games against inferior opponents, but not them. They are essentially Teflon. Oregon jumps one up to number three. Ohio State is now number four. Cincy gets a bump up to number five right outside. And Michigan is number six. Right. So there's something a little bit different this week than last week, right? Yeah. Last week, they talked about head-to-head matchups. That's why Oregon was ahead of Ohio State. This week, it seems like they do not want to deal with that with Michigan State beating Michigan two weeks ago. (laughs) Michigan State's at seven. And I know it in the long in the long scheme of things, it doesn't matter if Michigan State wins, beats Penn State, and they beat Ohio State. They're in the Big Ten championship, and they're going to probably be in. But it's this whole flip flop, right? Like last week, this really matters. This week, eh, kind of matters. Just when we need it to matter. Well, I think that's the thing. It's it's very arbitrary um, when they apply certain rules. Sometimes, you know, we talked about it last season. Sometimes the extra conference championship game matters, and then sometimes it doesn't. Um, sometimes flat out winning your conference matters, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, sometimes head to head matchups matter, but if you're Alabama or Michigan, they apparently don't. Um, <laughs> and the list goes on, and it wouldn't bother me if it was consistent. You know, if you have your criteria, you have your criteria, you know, and, and we've seen in the past that they care more about eye tests than necessarily record. 
uh, overall record in terms of having, whether it's an extra win in a conference championship game, you know, whatever it may be fine. That's, that's at least been somewhat consistent, but what hasn't been consistent is how they gauge head to head matchups with a similar record. Yeah. So if, if you've got, a, I mean, if you've got the same record, you would think the head to head matchup would be kind of the trump card unless yeah. the loss is, is a very bad loss. Yeah. Unless the loss is something like if Michigan state had lost to like a one in six Purdue. Yeah. Like, Nope. They got lucky against Michigan and the luck ran out against Purdue. But in this case, they ranked Purdue this week. Yeah. So um, Oklahoma state at eight, Oklahoma has two top 15 games in the next month. If Oklahoma beats Baylor and they beat Oklahoma state and then they beat them again, they're in. Yep. You can't keep them out. Um, so this the, the way this year is shaping is why it should be 12 teams. Because the way this year is shaping right now, the 12th team would be Wake Forest at 8-1. Texas A&M is the only two-loss team in the top 12. Yep. So, again, it's more and more everything that shakes out in the next month – in the end, people are going to be like, this is why we need to go to 12. And they're going to probably get pushed hard, even though they stopped. Yeah. This, this is kind of the first year I'd say that even the early, early polls have been, well, the early, early uh, rankings have been controversial, like really controversial. Um, And not just down the line. I mean, down the line has always been, Oh, I can make an argument that, you know, Ohio the State 10th ranked team should be the sixth ranked team or something like that. But you, but usually the first five or six are fairly written in uh pen. Yeah. Um, bar, barring any losses that happen this year, it, it's very, very questionable. And it's showing the flaws that when you start having a number of head to head matchups against teams that are in that top eight range, right. Um, it's definitely trending towards they care a whole lot more about eye tests than they do about head-to-heads. Exactly. All right. We'll roll on. And, Brian, the next thing we're going to hit here in just a little bit, I feel like we've got to go deep dive on this probably in January. The new potential draft of a NCAA constitution, essentially giving more powers to the school, different at each level, you know. Yep. D1, D2, D3. Um, what do you think of it? Is it a step in the right direction or is it too late? Uh, both. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's absolutely a better situation than what we've been dealing with. Um, this should have been addressed probably five to ten years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> If if you had addressed it five five to ten years ago, you probably wouldn't have a lot of the problems that you're having now. Um, probably name, image, and likeness would have been a whole lot smoother mm-hmm. of a transition. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a good move. It's it's just not timely. <laughs> no, it's 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 re- but it's always something you've always said about the NCAA. They they're reactionary. They are a reactionary. They are not a proactive organization. They're a very reactionary organization. 
and everything that's happened in the last really 18 months, it took them this long to get this together. Where in reality, you said it five to 10 years ago, at worst three years ago, they should have had something like this coming down the pipe. It'll be really interesting. The final version. And I'm sure sometime in February or March when the final version is released and approved, we'll sit here and talk about an hour with it about everything in the grainy, yummy details. So we'll we'll move on from that. Brian, um, I did not get to watch it last night, but I followed closely on my phone. The Hokies men opened the 2021-2022 season with an absolute curb stomping of Maine 82 47. Uh, first, before I go, did you get a chance to watch any of it or were you like me following? I watched it from start to finish, buddy. Yeah. I'm sorry. We, we, we are behind on Yellowstone and we had to finish season three <laughs> last night. We had to. But I wasn't going to. I told Wifey, I was like, listen, we're, we're going to finish this tonight. We'll stay up a little later. So give me some details. Who looked good? You know, looked like Mutz looked good. Looked like Mutz looked good. Uh, David looked great. Um, seven for seven from the field, fifteen points. Um, having having him look more aggressive at the offensive end is going to be great for this team. Uh, front court looked impressive, and that's even with uh, Aluma not really having his best night. Um, so I'm real. I'm really excited about what I'm seeing there. Um, and I think this, just from depth standpoint, I know there was some loss in the uh, in the portal, but um, guys are stepping up. Guys are are moving into roles. Um, so I'm hoping that 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 trend continues because you know we we put a kind of a second unit out there and we didn't see a ton of drop off. And uh, the first unit is pretty damn good on its own. So, oh yeah, the, the first unit really really good. Um... And someone I think I saw, maybe it's David Cunningham, someone said, this is the type of team Mike Young wants. Yeah. Not last year. Last year they played unbelievable with missing the key cogs. But, like, the way this team is constructed is exactly how he wants it. Um, And, you know, Nagessa. more of a motion offense and emphasis on the three and and – that that's definitely personnel wise. It aligns more with those values this year. I mean, and you know, they shot 43% from three. That's if they shoot 40 plus every game, they're going to be in every game. Yeah. Every game Um, did get out rebounded. Always a concern. That's, that's the big thing. And, and it's interesting. It, there were a couple folks that, that were like selectively active. And then there were a couple, like, I felt like, position was given away a little bit too easy. Um, that's definitely something that's correctable. And that's definitely something that, um, you know, you can kind of work on as the season goes along. Um, and probably a little bit of the, the defensive matchup on the perimeter um, could be better. But in terms of overall performance, I mean, there's not a whole lot to critique there, uh, rebounding aside. Yeah. Next game, Friday against Navy. Obviously, Navy coming off. If you didn't read, Navy beat number 25 UVA last night. So bye game. They got a bye game <laughs> against UVA. Yes. Yes. So, Friday night, check it out. I think it's going to be – let's see. I think it is going to be somewhere. It's going to be 8.30 Friday night. Uh, CBS Sports Network. 
There so, we go. So it will be on TV. All right, Brian, the follow-up on Trey, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to the presser any today or yesterday when it – yay, nay. I unfortunately have missed – Pretty much everything. Uh. Dude, dude, dude. <laughs> All right. Well, basically, this is what Fuente said. And again, he never really acknowledged what he said Friday night. And I wish someone would have put him to the fire saying, when did you really know? Because, like, the way he was talking is like he was at practice and he was able to run around and do things. Um, and he saw a specialist on Wednesday. It didn't really affect him while he was playing. They said – they said Saturday night or Friday night when he was doing the presser, he had a tough time talking and he apologized to the press and he had similar things coming back home on uh, Friday night from BC flying down. But and it had gotten worse during the week. The whole piece is if a guy's having any sort of breathing issues, are you really going to have any thought of putting them on a football field? At all. And I don't care if it's, well, when he's running around, he's fine. He's having issues breathing at times. You can't do that. I think that's why we got the wind. When we got the wind last week was, yeah, yeah, he has some problems breathing. And I'm sure it was like, yeah, he's not going to play. Because if there is something wrong and he gets popped the wrong way and essentially on the field of play quits breathing, yeah, you got a lawsuit on your hands forever. Yeah, and you know that's that's the situation you absolutely want to approach with caution. Anytime it's it's dealing with breathing, heart, any anything like that, you wanna you wanna take that slow and anal- and make sure you're making the right choice there. Um, so I'm not again, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here. Um, beat it, but just. Communication, man. Communication. That's what it I is. think I think that's the thing. I mean, the fan base genuinely cares about Trey Turner, not just whether he's going to be on the field, but what's going on because we, we he he's one of us. I mean, and how, how active he is on Twitter with with the fan base and yep. just his outright love of Hokie Nation in general. I mean, we we feel that. So I mean, players like that. Um, and, and not to discount any other player, but obviously players that, that are like that and really taking an effort to engage with fans, fans care about fans want to know what's going on. Um, and I'm not saying you've got to you know, divulge every little detail about an injury, uh, but you definitely need to clearly communicate when you knew he was not going to go. Because once you, once you did, once you communicated that very vaguely, then people started asking questions and I'm sorry, but I'll say this again. We're beyond the point where Fuente's getting benefit of the doubt from a majority of the fan base. So he's got to essentially account for that when he's making his statements as well. Yep. So again, what he should have addressed was probably what he could have said, and this would have been resolved with everything. He was practicing. I thought he was going to play. Your point was it was a communication issue, sounds like, between him and the training staff where, again, you have to tell it. And I think maybe it's how closed off he is, the introvert he is, 
where those guys like, well, we need to tell him and like, but it's tough to get him, yada, yada. But we'll move on from that. Um, it's going to be a great weekend up at Virginia Tech, Brian. It's Pokey Hall of Fame weekend. And there are seven folks going in. Going to mention them all here just to give them a little kudos. The first we look at, Jackie DeVelt Hendricks. She was a swimmer and diver back in the late 1990s. Two-time A-10 Most Outstanding Diver. Still holds a school record in one-meter diving. Five-time conference champion. Um, so, obviously, you know, unbelievable there. Then we get into the track stars. And, man, I can still remember the name Queen Harrison. I mean, if you are – if you lived in the state of Virginia – you knew who Queen Harrison was, three-time NCAA champion, an Olympian in 2008, um, you know, went to Beijing um, from Richmond, just an unbelievable star. Uh, you know, what, what more can be said about her in the yeah. mid-2000s as far as Olympic track goes at the Virginia – at Virginia Tech. Um, then another track star – Kristen Castellane, about the same time period, seven-time All-American, won a bronze at the 2016 in the 100-meter hurdles. Um, you know, the most individual All-American honors for any Virginia Tech student-athlete. Yep. Crazy good. Now we get into names we all know. All know. And let's start in, with basketball. Jamon Gordon. I mean, Jamon Gordon in defense, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you Big know, time. ACC Defensive Player of the Year back in 2006, 2007. Um, you know, those were shaky years, and they weren't the best years for Tech basketball. It was coming on the build, but he was one of those guys who was there. Um, you know, part of that team that pulled the upset. Um or excuse me, won a game in 07 when they got in the tournament, uh, yep. lost in the second round. Um, it's really cool kind of seeing guys you know that we've seen go in. And now we're going to turn to the three guys. Because big three. the big three. The first is he is DOG of DBU. Tyrone Drakeford, yep. 1990 to 1993. All Gig East three times, second in career interceptions at Tech, won a Super Bowl with my beloved 49ers. Um, he set the standard for DBU. He did. He did. And he was one of those guys that came in when we weren't a good program. And by the time he left in 93, his mark was made. Yep. Um, in 1992, he intercepted seven balls. Seven. I think I think Housley broke his record when he got eight. Back that year, he was named an All-American. Mm-hmm. Um, 16 total picks. I'm looking at the some of the pictures here, the old uniforms. It's, you know, you know, so let's bring some nostalgia back. He ended up being a second round pick. He played in the NFL for about seven years. Um, but again, one of the one of the one of the one of the Godfathers, one of the OGs. Oh yeah, standard standard bear. 
who you want to talk about next? Which of these two? Which of these two hits your heart? Man, two. These are two of my favorite all-time hockey defenders. Our favorites, all time. Like ATG. Uh, let Let's start with Xavier Adibi, the X Man. X Man. The X Man. I mean, sticks. Oh three to oh seven. We might have seen every game he played in, multiple yep. in person, multiple yep. in person. Um, all American, part of the 06 and 07 ACC championship teams. Came here, brother lineage. Um, and, and I remember talking about him when we did the when we did the Mount Rushmore man. Yeah, just pop, pops off of the tape. Like it's not, you, you see him out there, um, just big size can move, um, and is really the kind of the prototype that from thenceforth that the backer position was judged against. Like, uh, how, how close is he to Xavier? Like that that that's kind of the that's the standard of, of everyone who came, and you know we we had Jermaine Edmonds get close to that. Very close, and if, if um, but, but, but one more year, yeah, he might have got there. But I mean, a, D, a DB is a DB is the godfather of the of the backer position. Um, he really made that his own and really showed what a versatile backer could look like on the field. Uh, between those big interceptions he had, uh, big hits, stuff in the run getting out in the flat and just laying guys out. Um, that's what playing backers all about. And he did it at a very high level. He did it, man. And over, you know, 40 games in his career started 291 tackles, 30 for loss, 11 sacks. And all, you, you, you got to always look back at 2007 when literally we were the number one defense in the country. I think they gave up 11 points a game, 115 tackles, 12 for loss. That means he's everywhere at backer. Yep. That's 10 plus a game, which is just crazy to think about. Crazy to think about. Um, I'll let you do the honors with the last one here. (laughs) Well, I mean, our guy, man, RBA zone, five-star, high school All-American, from Highland Springs, from 2005 to 2008, he roamed the defensive backfield and a unbelievable member of DBU and Macho Harris, Victor Macho Harris. Um, Macho. You know. Shout out to Charlie Cridden, who was a coach at uh, Highland Springs when Macho was coming through the ranks there. I mean, what what more can you say? He was first team All American. He, he he won an ACC title. Um, his senior year, six interceptions, eight pass breakups. I mean, and you know, intercept. If, if you threw him his way and he jumped the ball, every quarterback feared it was going to get housed because he was that dynamic of an athlete. Yeah, he was that dynamic of an athlete. He wasn't a five star for any reason. I mean, you know, he, he was our program boundary corner. 
he was a boundary corner. Right? He, he, he was the epitome of it. The guy that can come up, make a play in the run. The guy that's going to stick to you in the pass. The guy that's going to house it if he makes a play on the ball. Um, and and just intimidation. Um, Macho was a physical player. Yes, he was. And, and we don't see a ton of that. And, and, and he was as physical as a player at the corner position as you, as you could have, but because he had the athleticism, he could play physical. He could do whatever he wanted. Yeah. He could play off. He could jam you. I mean, he had 46 tackles in that senior year for any defensive back to even get near 50. It, it tells what Brian's saying. He's physical. He was not afraid to stick his nose in. He was not afraid to go tackle someone. So that group, you know, in general, all of them deserve the honors. But those three football players, you know, it, it's cool to see them go in. It's cool yep. to see guys like that go in. And the last two especially for our generation, and, you know, many of y'all are out there that listen that might be somewhere between 30 and 40, close to our age. These are the guys you remember. Yep. We also reminisce about it because that's what we want to get back to. And you know it's possible. You know it's possible. It's an uphill climb right now from where we are, but it is possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. We can get there. We can get there. All right, Brian, before we go into looking at knowing the enemy and Duke, we are going to take a quick pause for a message from our corporate sponsor. As we take a quick break, we'd like to tell you about getting your free website report from our digital partner, Grassroots Digital Marketing Studio. They'll tell you how your website ranks on Google, on-site SEO, and social media. No commitment to buy anything. You can get your free report by visiting grassrootsdigitalstudio.com forward slash free dash website dash report. Now back to the episode. All right, Brian, let's take a look at Duke here. The three and six Duke Blue Devils. We'll give you a very scary thing here. They are 0-5 in conference. <laughs> The last two teams we have played who have not won a conference game, they both made us their get-right game. I hope that's not the case this weekend. Yeah, uh, we, we've already given away two first ACC win of the year, so uh, we, can't, we cannot afford another one. No, not on Hall of Fame weekend um, and not on the on senior day. All right. And not against Duke. Not against – Full stop. <laughs> All right, so Duke running a four-two-five defense, uh, not a really good defense at all. You know, red zone defense, one hundred and tenth. You get down there, you're probably going to score against them. Um, their best statistical line is they are tied for seventy-three in sacks, about a little over two a game. Um, one of the worst down, one of the worst third-down stop teams in the country. At you know, at forty-eight percent, they're giving up. So, but they still have some players that have some good statistics and look pretty good on tape. And let's start with uh, Dwayne Carter, Brian, number 90 high three star out of Pinkerton, Ohio, six foot three, 300 pound defensive tackles. So far this year, 26 tackles, four and a half sacks. This is the impressive number, two impressive numbers for me, four forced fumbles, three pass deflections. So when that big guy gets you, he's trying to get the ball out and he is, Probably why he's getting some mention. I've seen a couple of times when I was searching this week, NFL scouts, NFL scouts. 
three pass deflections saying you're not keeping him here. He's getting his hands up. What are you seeing on the tape from the big guy? Yeah, I mean, he has an excellent pass rush for a nose, and he has a good sense of awareness that when if he's not there, as you said, he's getting his hands up. Um, he does a good job of when he gets to the quarterback finishing the play. That's why you're seeing some of those forced fumbles. Um, he also holds the gap pretty well in the run. Um, so that's another thing to watch. He's not going to get moved out of the gap uh, on the interior there very much. And he's got a good motor for a 300-pounder, so he, he keeps working at it. He doesn't give up on plays or anything like that. Is he one of these guys on the inside that's not only getting production, but is he helping his outside guys out as well? Yeah, I mean, they, they can't exactly on, – on his side of the ball, they, they're not able to essentially devote an, an extra interior guy to help the tackle. It's going to have to be a chip with a running back or a tight end. So essentially you're having to – because of him, you're essentially having to – take someone out of the pass routes to assist with him. Yeah. I mean, the, the guard's definitely going to have to give, give a hand to the center um, unless there's a, a blitz coming. So he, he's not somebody where you can let the guard, you know, work, work in tandem with the tackle on any sort of block there. All right. So keep an eye on number 90 there in the middle, um, especially with the banged up Brock this week, um, you know, yeah, it's going to be definitely a big thing. All right, let's flip next, Brian, to Shaka Howard, number 42, a mid-three-star who out of Mill Creek, Georgia, six foot four, 220 pounds, really a tackling machine for them, 74 total tackles, nine for loss, including three sacks and then interceptions. Um, where is he, Will, Mike, or Sam? Uh, he's the Mike. He's kind of the quarterback of their defense. Um, he does a lot for them. Uh, he's their primary um, – run blitzer. Um, he's a good tackler. He's only average block shedder. Um, he doesn't do a great job of getting off blocks once he's fully engaged. Um, but he comes downhill really hard and makes plays when that, that run blitz is called. Um, he did force that, uh, a safety against Pitt. I don't know if you saw the, that game on the tape there, but, um, turnover on downs deep in the end there, that very next play, run blitz he gets up in there stymies the uh the lead blocker in the hole and then uh holds up the running back until everybody else gets there to finish off the tackle um and he does a good job in his zone coverage he's not suspect there either um he does a pretty good job holding up there he will get beat if he's matched up against an elite athlete but um if he's matched up against a running back or a tight end uh, or a slower slot receiver he can hold his own all right, so it sounds like a pretty well-rounded uh, linebacker there then. Someone yeah. that we, 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 we can't key in on and say, well, he's bad in coverage, let's attack there. Although the way our passing game has looked, that's not good. And it's not – obviously you talk about good tackler and an average set of the blocker. Sometimes at the collegiate level, that's all you need to be. Right? Shit yeah. block. Yep. Yeah. Um, I'd say the, the problem with running right at him is that you're also running right at uh, the, the previous man we mentioned <laughs> in, uh, in, in Dwayne Carter. So um, it's kind of a catch 22, um, but running right at him is probably the best, the best option just because you can get a, a man hat on hat on him and force him to shed that block. All right. Sounds good. Let's flip it over. Let's look at a couple guys in the secondary here. Let's start with Lumi Young, the fourth number 23. 
uh, a top 10 player in South Carolina when he came out, a mid-three-star at a Westside High School, 6'1", 205. Uh, also, some pretty good statistics here, 60 tackles, only one pick, but five pass deflections and two forced fumbles from him. Um, I know you've told me, Brian, he is the rover, so he is closer to the line. What does he bring really good um, – that we've got to look out for because again, this isn't a bad defense, but we're highlighting their best players that if these players have good games. We're going to be in trouble. Yeah. And I mean, he's, he's your typical in the box, strong safety, really good tackler, big hitter um, does a really good job making tackles in the spill area. Um, in terms of his coverage skills, um, he's much better in zone than he is in man coverage. And some of the stats you spoke of kind of speak to that, right? Um, He will get beat in man coverage, uh, but in zone, when it's more read and react, he does a good job of getting an impact at the point of catch, forcing some of those fumbles, um, you know, breaking up some of those passes. So um, if we can get him matched up in man uh, man situations, that's going to be the way to attack him. I would ask this. I would say we've been talking about it all year and they still hadn't done it. Would this be a game where – we should be deploying like Raheem Blackshear, giving two back looks and deploying him to essentially force him to play him man. We could, uh, they, they, they do a lot of like quarters that become man coverage, depending on the route tree. Um, they, they do some press man. It's a lot of at the line of scrimmage type stuff with the corners. Uh, we haven't got there yet, but we'll get there. Um, next actually (laughs) but uh you know just kind of going through their coverage that could force them in some sort of mismatch situation where you get a guy that's maybe a little more suspect in man coverage um with an athlete that he's probably not comfortable covering all right well let's go ahead let's flip it let's talk about the outside who will he be covering trey turner will he not we don't know until probably saturday 30 to 45 minutes before game time guys Jeremiah Lewis, number 39 out of Plano, Texas, was a three-star when he came out, 6'1", excuse me, 190. Last year, he was a top 10 pass deflector, pass defender in the ACC with seven. This year, three pass deflections, two picks, 22 tackles this far, and obviously he is a cornerback. So what are you seeing on the tape from him? Uh, he's the best cover corner they have. He's not necessarily elite, but he's very solid in coverage. Um, does a good job of of sticking with man. Um, and based on their scheme and his his skill set, they do a lot of press man again. That that turns into sometimes press you know press quarters depending on whether it's a zone or a man call there. Um, but he challenges challenges receivers at the line of scrimmage really well, um, and still able to run with the receivers throughout the route. Um, he is suspect against the run, especially if he's asked to set the edge. Um, if he's, if he's that backside edge defender, if you, you know, have the tight end, um, kind of uncovered by a receiver there, um, where, where he's got kind of edge responsibility, he does not do a good job there. Um, so that's, that's one area where we might be able to kind of scheme, scheme him into, into trouble. All right. So. Is is he is he just staying with the best receiver when you see him, or is it more he's going to be to one side of the field? Uh, he primarily uh, sticks to one side of the field. Okay, 
he's usually to the right. So it's so just the right. So regardless of where the ball is, he's always on the right side of the field. If it, I mean, if his man goes in motion, he'll chase. If it's depending on the coverage, but okay. um, he, he's more than likely going to stick with uh, with the right side if if okay. it's his own look. Okay, I only ask that because in those situations where if he's always on the right, regardless of the the coverage of where the sets or anything like that. Does that make it a little bit harder to attack him in the run game? Because essentially, they we know he's over here. We can send, um, you know, we can send we can send Young over there. We can let the linebackers flow that way. He's the liability. That's what I think. That's why I'm asking that. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of essentially try to try to hide him, um, but I mean, if you go. You know, trips right um, with the tight end to the left. Um, you know, we flip that. That means he's the the right cornerback on, on the yeah. tight end side. Um, you know, you're in a situation where he's going to have some edge responsibility there, um, along with man coverage against the tight end. Um, depending on the, obviously the play call and the the scheme call for the for the coverage, but um, if it is a either zone. Uh, or, or something like that, then, you know, you put him in a situation where he's he's staying on the right-hand side with the tight end, and now you've got a mismatch. Got it. So let's hope that we can get to run to his side of the field and uh, definitely make some leeway there. All right, Ron, let's flip it over to the offensive side of the field for the Duke Blue Devils. And just, just some highlights. Everybody knows it's a cut clip offense. We've seen it for roughly 22 years. To his credit, it's not stayed the same. It's variations of things he did 25 years ago at Tennessee. It's wrinkles. You never know what he's going to throw. And, you know, to me, they are a tale of really between the 20s. They're similar to us. Total offense, they're 31 in the country. 443 yards a game. They are getting a ton of yards. But scoring their 90th, only averaging 25 points a game. They're absolutely – they're worse than us in red zone efficiency at 100 yeah. – 121, you know, only converting 70% of their chances. They are and butt in the red zone. They, yeah. <laughs> Absolute yeah, butt. It's, it's, it's definitely their passing. Three passing touchdowns on 35 attempts inside the red zone. Three. We got more than that. Yep. You look at our passing game. We don't even have a good offensive coordinator. But let's let's talk about the guy that makes this offense go. Mateo Durant, number 21, a low three-star out of McCormick, South Carolina, 6'1", 195, already over 1,000 yards this year. Impressive. Five yards to carry. 11 total touchdowns. Nine running, two receiving. He's not a one-way back like we saw last week with BC. He can do it both. 23 receptions, over 200 yards, averaging about 10 per. What what, what are you seeing? Because he's getting some buzz where he might potentially leave, correct? Yeah, I mean, as you said, he's already over 1,000 yards. He's really the the second best uh, back in terms of production in the ACC this year. Um, He's patient between the tackles, has great vision. 
uh, really good acceleration if he runs to the edge. Um, they like to swing it out to him in the passing game. Uh, they'll also run wheels and stuff like that with him, so it's not just a screen or a swing game. There's also some wheel routes thrown in there. Um, but he does a really good job of get, taking what the defense is giving them, and I think that's why he's been so efficient is because, I mean, that it's not a I mean, – we're going to talk about the offensive line. It's not an elite offensive line, but – he takes what's there, he gets the yards, and they line up and do it again. So consistency, I'm assuming he doesn't get tackled a lot in the backfield. No, very much a guy that is always getting some yardage. Um, unless the you know there's a perfect call on the on the defensive side with the run blitz, he's getting some positive yards, and he does a good job of running through arm tackles between those between the tackles as well. All right. Let's go next, Brian. Let's look at the quarterback before we flip to the offensive line. Gunnar Holmberg, number 12. Pretty high three-star when he came out out of Wake Forest, North Carolina, at Heritage High School, 6'3", 205. Um, passing has a little bit to be desired, though. You, and you, you expect that with the really good running back, but I think the one stat you would expect to be significantly higher, 2,034 passing yards in the nine games this year but less than eight per attempt, like 7.7 per attempt. That's having a guy that good run, you want that to be over 10. Um, Seven touchdowns, six picks, um, not really a running threat, only less than 200 yards, but he's averaging two a carry. Um, But he does have six touchdowns, so he is an actual running threat down in the red zone. what are you seeing out of uh, Holmberg there? Yeah, so I'll start with a fun fact. Uh, my wife taught with his mom when we lived down in Raleigh. So Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so fun fact number one, um, I, I knew I knew Gunnar Holmberg was going to Duke uh, in like 2016. For real? 2017, yeah. <laughs> so... Um, I was like, okay, well, you know, we'll see, we'll see if he ends up being a starter one day. Here he is, he's a starter. Um, he's accurate, especially in the short to intermediate range, um, and that's primarily the bread and butter of this offense. Um, he's got good pocket awareness. He's got decent deep accuracy, but he lacks some of the true like vertical threat arm strength. Um, he can definitely make a good throw of forty yards, but he's not a guy that's really stretching the field like that consistently. Um, and even when he's got got an open guy, sometimes he sacrifices accuracy for distance and vice versa. Um, so you'll you'll see some trade off uh, when he tries to strike deep down the field like that. Okay, he's not really a threat in the running game, but he's got enough athleticism to scramble when needed. And they use him heavily if they get inside the five. I mean, it, it's pretty much either he's throwing a fade or they're running a sneak, which is kind of it baffles the mind a little bit with having such a good running back. So I'm thinking, looking at it, and we'll talk about the offensive line here. It's kind of like our situation where that offensive line is more designed for middle of the field and not necessarily designed to push guys off the ball. Yeah. So let's talk about about the offensive line. Obviously when a guy rushes for a thousand, they can't be absolutely dreadful. I mean, you know, they are giving up 
about six tackles for losses a game. But I think the way you've been talking about Holmberg, that's probably more on him being able to get away from pressure and probably getting tackled outside the tackle box where it's not a sack. It's considered a tackle for loss. Um, not terrible about getting up sacks. About mid-pack, about about in, in the 60s, past low 70s. So, you know, he's not a sitting duck back there with them. Um, so what makes them – why is a combination of this offensive line and Mateo Durant, why are they so good running the ball? So between the 20s, they're good running the ball because they have a lot of quick hitting inside plays that they are really good at blocking up and, and zoning up. Um, it, the the trap is one of them. That's that's really their bread and butter. They also love the inside zone. Um, and But but the combination of Mateo Durant and the, the strength of this offensive line really makes those two plays uh, go for them. Um, it's definitely their 100% their bread and butter and they're above average in pass pro. Um, they, they do a good job and the scheme helps them because it is a lot of quick passes, you know, from the five to, to 20 yard range. They're not going down the field a whole lot. Uh, so there's not a, a ton of, you know, four or five second, uh, pass pro going on. It's more of the, the two to four second pass pro. Um, and, and they're holding up well there. Uh, but they are awful in goal to go situations, um, especially running the ball. They are not designed to just fire off and move um, the other defensive line. They they are very much uh, they they need they need more room to work with. So when you're down at the goal line and your and your splits tighten up and there's a lot of guys in not just inside the box but within the first two yards of the the ball, uh, they don't do a very good job of getting a push there. Uh, I saw Holmberg have about two. It looked very similar to what we're we're dealing with, having about uh, two or three goes at a quarterback sneak and getting nothing, just fucking nothing. <laughs> well, I, I mean, is it? I mean, he's a little bigger. I mean, is it just they can't fire, or is it just they're that finesse of a line that undersized? When they get there, it's like you can't fire. You're not big enough to fire into most division one offensive line or defensive lines. It's a little of both. Um, they're, they're a little undersized, but also just the, the, the way they, their style. Um, yeah, it's more of a moving guys out of gaps laterally than moving guys off the ball. Okay. I got you. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, was it a lot of fun watching this? When I hear you talk about traps and inside zone, I know that's. I near, love near traps, part. man. Trap <laughs> traps are my favorite. <laughs> Fuck, I sound like Fred from <laughs> Scooby Doo. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! All right, let's roll on and let's talk about a couple of receiving threats here. Let's talk, talk about their number one guy, Jalen Calhoun. Forty-one receptions, six hundred nine yards, over fourteen. Um, per reception, only three scores. Uh, comes out of Southside High School in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, 5'11, 190. He's a mid three star when he comes out. Um, XY slot, where we see him lining up, Brian. Uh, he's your slot, and uh, he does a really good job uh, on their kind of quick short passes inside the slot, your outs, your slants. He's got great quickness um, coming in and out of routes, but they also use him um, up the seam. 
and um, that if they're going deep, it's usually him off of some sort of play action attacking the middle of the field. Okay. All right, well, let me ask this. Are they primarily in three wide sets? Pretty much every down there, at least going three wide. Occasionally, they'll they'll run in an extra tight end, uh, H-back. Um, but usually, they're going uh, three wide with the kind of H-back that they use in, in either in line or um, in the backfield. All right. So, what will be your expectation for us? How much should we run nickel? getting strong Chapman and Waller out there to cover him and letting Connor play on the inside. Uh, I don't want to do it too much just because of how much they run between the tackles. Okay. Does, does that mean, worry then with Calhoun on Jamal? I, I, I think no, not, not too much just because I feel like they don't, they're not successful hitting downfield that much. Okay. Uh, so while while we are suspect in that in that coverage responsibility, I don't think it'll bite us for the home runs. I think it might keep us on the field a little longer than we like to here, here and there. Okay. Um, but it's not going to end up a six on the board very often. Got it. That makes sense. All right, Brian. Tell me if you've heard this before. Six foot five, two hundred and twenty pound tight end. Have I said this every week? A six foot five, two hundred twenty pound tight end, or somewhere in there. That's Jake Bobo, number nineteen, um, out of Belmont, Massachusetts, mid three star when he came out. Fifty nine receptions, six hundred thirty five yards, right at eleven per reception. Only one touchdown this year. What are you seeing out of Jake Bobo, Brian? Yeah, and they they really don't use him as a tight end. They use him as a wide. I mean, he's essentially Bucky Hodges. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, he's 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 really a wide receiver. They use him outside. Um, sometimes they'll put him in the slot. Sometimes they'll 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 put him online. But usually he's outside, and he's their stick mover. Um, he he will occasionally get a deep target here or there. Uh, usually some sort of like corner route um, where they get him isolated. Um, but he, he'll run the full route tree and, uh, they will target him a lot in the red zone. Uh, usually with the fade. Makes sense being six foot five. Um, so he's not, he's not the H back inline tight end. So they've got another guy that does that. Yep. The, the, this, he's primarily that Bucky Hodges, 2016 type, really big wide receiver. So let me ask this. Is that who Waller needs to be on? Yeah, I'd put Waller on him um, almost exclusively if I could. All right, that makes sense here. Well, Brian, we've talked enough about them. We've given everybody some insight to what they do, some of their key players. But we've got to now talk about the Hokies because, you know, in this Kappa version, a lot of the stuff that we've already talked about, you're going to hear again. It needs to be emphasized. Um, But it's really funny because, you know, the the symbolization of a kappa is the palm of the hand, right? Yep. And you, you kind of think about it. This is a palm in the hand victory. We're better than them, right? We're better yep. than them. We have more talent. We're at home. 
we even had an extra day to prepare, but it, it worries us. And Brian, let's let's start offensively. I know what you're going to say. Pound the table. Say it. Continue the commitment to the running game. Pound Last the one. football. Run it. Run it. Even though they have some guys who can help stop the run. Overall, they're not built that way. And with Blackshear and Malachi averaging five last week against a significantly better front seven, front six, yep. don't go away from it. Don't get fancy. Don't get cute. Don't get smart. If those guys each aren't close to 15 to 20 for both of them, it will be a disappointment. Yeah. So I'm ready for that, actually. So – for the second one, um, I, I don't know if you've heard this one before. It's an oldie but a goodie. Get whoever is quarterback comfortable early. And we did not do that against BC. We did, didn't hardly throw a pass for most of the th- first half. And by the time we started throwing the passes, we weren't completing them um, because we were taking shots. Get these damn quarterbacks comfortable early, whether it's BB, whether it's Knox, whether it's Taj. And if BB is out, I better see Taj take some snaps. Well, you know, if, if for nothing else, get Taj in there to run, to run. Yeah, because Knox is not a threat. Knox, Knox is, is not a threat for if you if you want to have any semblance of read option or RPO or any of that shit, Taj you Bull. better get Taj out there. Yeah. Do we expect him to start us talking with a buddy today at work? No, I do not expect him to start. But he need we're at four. He he can play in every game from here out if we make a bowl. He yep. can play in every game. There needs to be packages for that kid. You need to get him on the field and see what he's got. And if he runs the ball and that's it, that's fine. At least you give more of a viable threat to running the ball. Um, to your point about comfortable early, I'll, I'm not even going to talk to you if the first three passes are past 15 yards because you're going to be in a grumpy mood the rest of the afternoon like – idiot we we have this opportunity yeah and, even and we're gonna have to take a shot here or there against this team because oh. they do play that press but you still can get the, these opportunities from guys that aren't named trey and tay you don't have to always look outside you still have h-backs you still have tight ends you still have slot receivers there is such a thing as the middle of the field i don't know if you've heard of it no. But we should actually attack that from time to time. We do an awful job of attacking the middle of the field, especially in the intermediate area. That's where we need to focus. And I don't know if it's a not seeing the field issue by the quarterback, whether it's a just not not emphasizing it by our coordinator. I don't know. But it's something. But, I mean, we're we're close to dead last in intermediate passes inside the hashes. Well, we weren't great last year in, or, or even the early part of this year with James, and James is an absolute threat over the middle of the field. Yep. It, it, it's like there's this area where a lot of times it can become void, right? How many times just watching any level of football, high school, college, or pro, that the middle of the field gets voided? Yep. And some of the best schematic offensive coordinators know how to manipulate to get – holes in the middle of the field wide open and it's easy passes 
it's easier passes because it's literally straight. But we'll digress on that. Um, I, I, I hope BB's there. I, I think BB will play, and I know he's he, he took a shot to the ribs. But if if he can throw, and he was throwing on the sideline, he was just in pain. Yeah. What I think will happen is I think he will get a cortisone shot, and for three quarters of the game, he won't feel it and start in the fourth. He will. And so re- return sure. of Perkmeister. Eh, you know, maybe <laughs> um, the other big thing, Brian, and and I think this is an absolute must is because they're not a good team. We have to score early. It does not have to be often, but we've got to put, I think at least 14 points up by halftime. Yep. I'm with you. We, we've got to score against these guys because they will move the ball, which means unless they're going forward on fourth like they did uh, a handful of times uh, against Pitt last week, uh, they're going to have moments where they're going to at least get field goals on these drives. We've got to yeah. at least at least match that, if not put, put it in the end zone ourselves. Um, and I'd love to trade touchdowns for field goals against Duke because then – then we can make some make some hay there. Um, what worries me is if we get in a field goal fight with them. Yep. That is the worrisome part here. All right, Brian, let's flip over to defense. Let's talk about it. They are a good running team. We saw what happened last week. Now, luckily, that was more of a power scheme, a little bit more push around. This is more finesse. What has to go on on the defensive line? And the linebacking core. Uh, all the front six, much better gap integrity this week than, than against BC. And it should be easier sledding this week. Um, you're not playing as physical of an offensive line. It's more finesse. Yeah, they run the traps good, but you, you need to hold their gap. Make sure that you're not making a good hole, a great hole. And make sure that your linebackers are filling timely so you're not at the second level with Mateo Durant. Um, and going hand in hand with that, man, you got to tackle, you got to tackle, 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 tackle. Cause we have not done that well the last few weeks either. We have not done it well at all. Um, I don't think we've actually had a really good tackling game since middle Tennessee. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. Uh, and when I say that, I don't mean, has there been quarters where we have tackled great? Yes. Absolutely, there have been quarters where we tackle great. Um, and, and the one thing that you mentioned about Durant that's a little bit more worrisome than the BC back is you mentioned that acceleration to the edge. You know, when we talk about the tackling, if we don't tackle him, it's not going to be what we talked about last week, the less than 20, how many we kept him less than 20. I think he could break a big one. I, I yeah. really feel that because of the couple times I've watched him, you talking about that acceleration. It's not going to be this, oh, we slowed him down and then we got him six yards later. I know you're going to slow him down and you're going to get him about 16 yards later yeah. or 26 yards later. So, you know, tackle, I don't know. I know it's getting later in the season but they've got to get that somewhat corrected in these next three games. Absolutely, yeah. All right, last big piece here, Brian. Um, They do have a propensity to turn the ball over. Um, 
I think we need to at least be a, a plus two. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely. Think, I, I think if we do a plus two, I think we win the game comfortably. If it's at yeah. or zero or they win it, get your drinks out, get That's your true. Maylocks out, get your Tylenol out. It's not going to be a fun game to watch as it gets later. Yeah, and just talking about the turnovers, um, you know, Gunner is prone to a bad decision here or there. Um, there was a fumbled exchange at the one-yard line against Pitt that pretty much took at least three points off the board for Duke. So, um, And they had had a previous fumble on that same drive that, that they got on. So they, they, they will put the ball on the turf. They will throw it to you. Um, we just got to capitalize on those, uh, make sure we get turnovers there. And I think if we, yeah, like you said, if we win the turnover battle, especially if we win it by two, I think that sets us up pretty good. All right, Brian, prediction time. I led last week. You lead this week, sir. Uh, I think this is closer than we want it to be, but I think we pull it out. I've got the Hokies winning 24-20. All right, yeah. Definitely closer than what the experts think. I mean, it was – actually, let me pull up one of the apps I have here. This game, as of 11.30 Eastern Standard Time on a Wednesday night, is we're laying 11 and a half. That's, that's an asinine that's amount for a team that just lost to Boston College and got handled, and we don't know if their quarterback's starting. Exactly. So maybe <laughs> they know he is starting. Um, the over-under is 50. They're saying we're winning this game like 31-20. Yeah. Um, if we go plus two in the turnover, yeah. But if you're saying everything's going to be even – I still think we win this game. I think we pull one out for the seniors, for the Hall of Fame guys. I'm going to go 27-20. Um, I think we get one more score uh, than what you think. I think we kick some – probably some – we get a field goal early or something, and we always stay ahead of them. So, um, we're both picking for the Hokies this week. We're not – no dissenting opinions between – First time, long time we've picked uh... – for the Hokies on the same week. <laughs> Richmond? Richmond? Yeah, I Richmond. think so. <laughs> Richmond. Well, one of the last games they won, too. So, let's roll on, Brian. Let's take a look at our Saturday pick-ems. Um, Brian, after the 5-5 five and five week, 56-45-1. I'm 59-41-1. If you would have made every bet, you would be in the plus category for us. So... Might want to listen to us. We're doing all right. We're not doing bad. Um, I no. mean, we're better than a coin flip. So we're better than a coin flip. <laughs> all right, Brian. We're going to start today. UNC Pitt. I'll lead since I'm leading the uh, thing, and I'm going to go with Pitt. I don't see six and a half being enough for Carolina to cover. Um, I mean, they gave up 55 to Wake, and I know Wake's a good offense. So is Pitt. I, I do think that was an emotional victory or emotional game for Carolina. Um, and they needed a bunch of fluky stuff to win that game and to cover. Um, but this is a Thursday night, so a short week for both teams, and it's at Pitt. Yep. There will not be much energy there. That's why I'm going Pitt. I'm with you, um, and it, it's got a lot to do. I mean, when you look at what happened – 
last week with UNC. They needed Wake's running back to get injured and the offense to forget how to offense um, for most mm-hmm. of the fourth quarter mm-hmm. uh, to pull that out. Um, I don't see that happening against Pitt. I think you're going to get a uh, solid Kenny Pickett for most of the game. What's the what's the running a Banacana? You're going to get I don't I can't say his name. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to get a whole lot of him. Um, and I think they're going to be able to 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 win by about I'd say it's it's going to be about a nine or ten pointer. All right, both going pit in that game. All right, Brian, let's take a look at this one: Syracuse, Louisville. This is at Louisville. Louisville home favorite, laying three points. Who are you taking? I'm taking Cuse to win outright. I think they're going to be able to run the ball all game against them. Um, I think Schrader's going to make enough plays in the passing game for it to to be an outright win. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I'll take Cuse in the points. I do see them winning outright as well. Um, you know, Louisville four and five. Had Clemson, couldn't close the deal. Where Syracuse uh, coming off a bye week, um, on the verge of bowl eligibility, on the verge of probably keeping Dino his job. And uh, I, I think they get it done here with a very solid running game. Yeah, I think uh, Sean Tucker's going to be satisfied with his performance. <laughs> that, that, like, it's, it's, tw- it's so great. It's almost like a, a guy doing the uh, – your your year in results uh, for working for a company every yeah. week. Here's my evaluation. <laughs> so you know it, it's awesome to see that it's it, it makes you laugh. If you don't follow him or haven't caught it, um, you know definitely do that. Um, the other piece, um, you know, Louisville's almost giving up twenty eight points a game. I think Syracuse will get that plus a little bit more. Yep. Hey, right, Brian. Oh, I have to lead on this one too. I have no clue what the betting public is thinking. BC Georgia Tech. Yes, this game is at Bobby Dodd Stadium, and some. And Georgia Tech is getting the full two home field advantage. Jerkovic, extra week back, probably full week of practice, getting the hand better. Solid running game. We know how bad Georgia Tech's running defense is. We saw that firsthand. I think BC not only wins outright, I think they make this thing like a 14, maybe 17-point win. I don't think it's that much, but I think it's a solid touchdown win for BC. Um, Much like uh, we described, Heinz Field, uh, Bobby Dodd is the opposite of electric. (laughs) It is, it is not an atmosphere that gives really any home field advantage. Um, but unlike Hines, it also isn't dead to the point where the opposing team, like, adopts it's detrimental. It. <laughs> yeah. Hines is detrimental uh, to an opposing team because yeah, you feel uh, no energy coming off. Well, it's a little bit of a more comfortable state. Like, it, it, Hines is such it's, – it's so big – that 3,000 seat stadium with like 9,000 people there. Yeah. It, it just, it feels weird. Um, yeah, I think Boston college is able to run the ball. I think they're, you know, with another week, uh, you get Jerkovic um, playing a little bit more crisp in the passing game. You'll see Zay flowers have a, a few big ga- uh, gainers, uh, in the passing game. And I think they take care of business. All right. 
We were three for three. I have a feeling we're going to be similar on this one too. FSU Miami, um, a rivalry of our youth that was unlike any other. Wide right one, wide right two, battles every year. Yep, fights every year. And I feel like this is might be the smelliest line of all. Miami is laying two and a half points, and I know that you know this game is in Tallahassee. But, you know, are people watching Florida State play? And some of them are like, <laughs> well, you know, they almost beat Clemson. Clemson's not the normal Clemson. What do you say on this when you get to lead? Uh, I'm taking Miami. Um, I think I think it's just going to be too much offense for on Miami's end. I think they do just enough on defense to, to keep it. I think it's still probably a one-score game, but it's not – it's not coming down to the wire at the two and a half. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I don't I don't see it as a huge blowout, but I can't lay two and a half points to FSU right now. They're not playing good enough football um to you know to be that close. Yep. All right. Um UVA Notre Dame. This is at Scott Stadium, just up the street here. It's gonna be a prime time game, seven thirty ABC. We get the ACC network, they get ABC. <laughs> Notre Dame lane five and a half. Um, and I'm going to take UVA in this one. I, 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 I can't feel them winning outright, but I think their offense, if Brennan Armstrong is playing, um, actually take that back. Is he playing this week, Brian? Can you effort me real quick? Cause now I thought I already was playing, but now I'm double checking myself. Let's see. Uh, status uncertain. Mm. But he hasn't been ruled out. So, I mean, that's. I'll take back good things about UVA. Take that back. Take that back completely. Give me Notre Dame. If there's if there is a potential he's not playing, that means he's probably not practicing this week. If those ribs are still sore, Marcus Freeman is going to pop him a couple times. And he will not be playing the rest of the game. Kyle Hamilton will fly in there. Yeah, I'm actually going to go UVA here. I, I still think that Notre Dame wins outright, but Notre Dame plays a lot of close games against co- good competition. Okay. Um, I, I think it's going to stay a close game. It's probably going to be a four or three point uh, victory for Notre Dame. Um, UVA keeps it close. Um, Obviously, that changes if Brennan Armstrong is a full no-go, but I think even without the week of practice, I think they still are able to get things done enough on offense to keep it close. Well, see, my worry is this. Their defense is so bad, and Notre Dame is a solid defense. I think it becomes one of those things if Armstrong's not playing. If they get down early, like 14-0, 14-3, they're going to start forcing it even more than normal against yeah. a good back end, and that's where things could get ugly. Um, although I think I think what Bronco will probably try to do, I think he'll probably try to crawl this game. I think if if, if he doesn't have Armstrong, he will grind it to a halt as much as yep. possible. Yep. Um, look look for the football player to to take a lot of direct snaps. Oh God! All right, Brian. Next one up: NC State Wake, a ranked battle in the ACC. Wake coming off their first loss of the year. 
is getting just two points at home versus the Wolfpack. What do you say on this? This one? is the matchup of the ACC, right? I mean, this is, is the best. This is it the is. best matchup in conference that we've had all year. It in is. terms of ranked opponents, in terms of overall record, um, and I'm going to take NC State because with with uh, running back out for Wake potentially, uh, I haven't read any uh, whether he's out for long term or not. Uh, but he was carted off. I, I don't think he's going to be good enough to go in this one. I think that's the difference. Offense isn't quite clicking like it needs to. NC State takes care of business. Yep, I'm with you on that. I, I'm going to take NC State as well. A, this is going to be the best defense Wake has seen all year um, with a steady offense. The running back out for Wake. Plus, if we can remember, go back to 2019 when they came into lane with, what, two losses? two close losses, we handled them. The rest of the season, they weren't right. Yep. It seems like there's one thing about a Clawson team, if they get punched in the mouth, it usually takes them multiple weeks to finally recover. So I'm going to take the two points with NC State because I see an outright win. All right, All right. Brian. Uh, I got a really interesting for you one here. And I'll uh, since I'm leading. Marshall and UAB. Hmm, wonder why I want to talk about this game. <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure if it has any tie-ins to Virginia Tech at all. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> I, no, no, nothing that I've heard of tie-ins to Virginia Tech with uh, Marshall or UAB, but just thought we'd talk about the Charles Huff-led Marshall Thundering Herd at 6-3. and three. Um, You know, Charles is that, Mar- Huff- is that Maryland native Charles Huff? Maryland native Charles Huff, <laughs> born and raised in the DMV, uh, played four years of collegiate football down at Hampton, um, and has been on a great journey since then. Coached at Maryland with Freegion for a year, been 10 years between Nick Saban, Joe Moorhead, and James Franklin at Penn State. Really great recruiter of Virginia. I mean, he was stealing so many kids from Penn State while he was there. You know, the other thing, Brian, was also an associate head coach for Nick Saban. Says a lot about who he is. Yeah, that sounds like a, a very solid uh, solid head coach that Marshall has there. Um, very let, solid head coach. Let's talk about the game. <laughs> oh, oh, the game. Well, Marshall's laying five. This is a home game for them. Um, you know, and don't get me wrong. UAB good in their own right. They're both six and three, um, and I'm just gonna just throw this one out there. I'm gonna give it to Huff, who after a three game losing streak has righted his ship and has his guys playing great, winning three in a row. So I'm gonna take Charles Huff and the Marshall Thundering Herd. Lay the yeah, I'm right there with you. Touchdown. Yep, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think. Uh... The Huff-led Thundering Herd take care of business. They keep it moving, keep it rolling. Exactly. All right. We got to talk about Hendon Hooker, right? We got to. He's got had to. a great year. He's a uh... <laughs> great year. He's on a he's on a few watch lists for the or a few lists for the end of the year. He's getting more talk about potentially getting drafted. 
Yeah, he's a, what Davy Davy O'Brien semifinalist list or something. Yeah, like something that. like that. And he's like he went he's went from unranked to like number six on some of the big boards for the NFL. But he has a absolute monstrous task at hand down in Athens. They are getting twenty and a half points. Um, but it's been kind of tumultuous this week down in Georgia. One of their linebackers getting arrested with a felony rape charge. Um, you know, it's going to be to 330 on CBS. Uh, the line just went down to 20, not 20 and a half. Georgia land the points. What do you say to this one, Brian? Uh, I'm going to take Tennessee here. I think they keep it close enough. Um, I haven't really seen a game that Hendon's played in where anyone really ran away. I know Ugga is a different beast than everybody really on anyone's schedule. Yeah. Um, but I think just the combination of factors for uh, Georgia and Hendon playing at a really high level, I think they do enough to keep it close. It's still probably 17 points, mm-hmm. but I think they uh, – they, they keep it that close, so I'll take Tennessee here. That's the exact number I had in my head. I think Georgia wins this game 31-17. I think Hendon keeps them in. I think he throws a couple good touchdown passes to keep them always within reach. I think Georgia constricts them later in the game and puts them out um, as what they can do because of the yeah. type of defense they are, even losing a stud linebacker like they have this week. All right, Brian, I'm going to check this one real quick. Michigan, Penn State. A little while ago, this line was one for Penn State, and actually it has flipped. Wow. I don't know why it's flipped, but it has flipped. Michigan laying one and a half now. Now let's make those updates to our sheets here. Yep. Got to make an update. Yep. Somebody would say, can't you effort it and do this after the show? No, because when I get after the show, I'm going to bed. But Michigan laying one and a half run, uh, and I'll I'll lay it. Um, I think Michigan's a better team this year. They've had one bad quarter of football all year, and it cost them that game in East Lansing. Um, One of their two rivalry games of the year, so, I mean, it was a big game for them. It was a big Um, game. Yep. And I'm actually right there with you. I'm I'm gonna take Michigan here. I think that that I was gonna have them as the outright winner when when the line was uh, one for Penn State. So I definitely have them taking the uh, the, the W here. Uh, so I'll I'll lay the one and a half. Yeah, I, I'm I'm trying to figure out what's flipped on that game because I looked at that this afternoon and it was Penn State by one. So a two and a half point flip. Um, no, no, three and uh, no two and a half point flip. Um, so interesting. I, I'll be doing some reading tomorrow or some listening tomorrow morning. All right, Brian, finally game of the week. Uh, probably one of the biggest games of the week. Um, especially for Oklahoma talked about last few, the last next few weeks are going to be really big for them. They get the 13th ranked Baylor bears. This is going to be in Waco. Oklahoma is the five-and-a-half-point favorite. What do you say on this one? I'm going to go Oklahoma here. Um, I think this is kind of a one of the wins that starts getting them back in the conversation uh, to jump into that 
that playoff picture. Um, I think they get a, a fairly signature win. I don't think it's a blowout of Baylor, but I think it's a solid 10-point win. All right. I'm going to take Baylor in this game. I think this game's going to be closer than what people think. Oklahoma still has offensive problems. I think Aranda will scheme enough on defense to keep it close. I think Oklahoma wins field goal, three, four points. But I think it's going to be a war um, on Saturday, high noon. High noon. High noon. Um, first time in weeks that I will get to sit down and have a another full day of collegiate football. So, Brian, we have agreed on all but two games this week. Yeah. Brian is not – clearly there is – there are some weeks Brian will tell you when you, when we get behind, we were like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go opposite just because I'm trying to play catch up. This is not one of those weeks, huh? No, just the way the lines are falling, um, it just feels like it's it's not a week to to roll the dice just to do it. Um, trying to strategically place my, my dice rolls here. Um, ironically, I'm going with, with UVA on one of those, so – Y'all could hate me if you want to, but if, if Brendan Armstrong's in that game, I think they keep it close, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Um, but it's laid out there now. Like, again, if Armstrong was playing, I'd take UVA with the points, but I'm going to I'm gonna roll the dice and say it's the opposite way. Anything breaking in the last hour and 90 minutes here, Brian, or hour and 30 minutes? Yeah, nothing's jumped off that I see, man. I think we're good to go. All right, well, that'll wrap up this episode of the Boundary Corner Podcast. I'm Curtis Wilson. I'm Brian Siegler. Visit our website at BoundaryCornerBT.com to listen to all of our episodes. While you are there, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Subscribe to our YouTube account and your favorite podcast source, including Spotify, Amazon, and Apple Podcast. We always let our buddy Jason Long play us in, play us out. Catch him on Spotify and on Apple Music. We thank you for listening. Please rate, review. We really appreciate any feedback. Don't be afraid to DM us on Twitter or send us a Facebook message. We will always respond. We thank you for listening. And as always, let's go. Hokies. Okay.